Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest. You know, like we're gonna be talking about many of the differences between being an operator, being an investor. I mean, he's taking a company from nothing to taking over, you know, four hundred million, you know, of capital, you know, just when he stepped in. And and I think that he has, you know, some of the different hats, you know, that they, that really allow you to understand well the venture world, you know, from a investment banking, you know, perspective, from a operator perspective, from an investor perspective. So I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, and I'm sure that you're all going to find the episode today very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, John Milad. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me. So originally born in New Hampshire. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, you know, in hindsight, it was quite idyllic, actually. It was a small town, uh, but pretty pretty wholesome, pretty safe. Gave me a lot of space to explore and pursue the things that I wanted to, um, but also left me with a hunger for something more and something bigger, which ultimately you know fueled me to go off into the world and do uh, to move to different places. Lived in big cities like Chicago, New York, London, uh, and to pursue a career in fields that I didn't even know existed when I was a young man. And you studied in Chicago, and you did political science there. But then, you know, eventually, you know, you went into Wall Street, you know, out of all places after college. So why Wall Street? You know, what got you into into Wall Street? Yeah, good question. So the, thing, the one thing to know about the University of Chicago is it really emphasizes 
uh, a broad grounding in all of the major academic fields. And so even with a degree in political science, I took university level physics, chemistry, biology, calculus, statistics. So it did give me a good set of tools to go out into the world and you know, meaningfully participate in many different disciplines and fields of interest. Uh, I went. To, I chose to go to Wall Street because it was in the 90s. And when you were young and ambitious and wanted to make a name for yourself and do something that was, you know, hard and rewarding, Wall Street was, you know, was, or management consulting were the two things that people went off to. You know, I liked the idea of doing deals and getting exposed to the commercial world. So um, I chose. I chose chose to go from, from college to. Uh, work at Lehman Brothers in the 90s, which was a you know a great investment bank that had uh, a broad international platform, had a little bit of a boutique feel, but was one of the large players. Um, and that was really where I cut my teeth, learning about you know, valuation, capital markets, analyzing things, transactions. I know those are skills that have you know remained valuable to me throughout my career. So then let's talk about the investment banking, because I mean you did the investment banking quite a bit. You know, you did that, you know, at Lehman. You know, then, you know, like you went to Nomura as well, you know, like you've done it all, you know, and you've done it in multiple places like New York, London, I guess from the investment banking, you know, side of things, what were some of the important things that you learned, you know, especially when it came to understanding, you know, how to get deals done? Firstly, one of the things that I learned, I started to appreciate this whole idea of the curse of knowledge, you know, the things that we know aren't necessarily things that other people know. And so... You know, as I developed my knowledge of investment banking, how to value things, how capital markets work, how to structure things, how to put deals together. You know, I started to realize that, you know, even though my clients were industry experts in their industries, which uh, was mainly in the healthcare industry and med tech, biotech, they didn't necessarily understand how the markets work or how to raise money and all that. And so I started to gain an appreciation that, you know, my perspective um, was differentiated and valuable. And, you know, you collaborate with those subject matter experts to figure things out together. And so you know, it's kind of the idea of an orchestra having many different instruments. And um, it, it just because someone's a virtuoso on the violin doesn't mean they would know a whole lot about playing the flute. You got to compose all that. Um, and so that was one thing I learned. Um, the other I learned is, you know, deals only make sense to people if they understand what they're getting out of it. Right. And so early on as a junior banker, you're just processing a lot of stuff. But what you quickly learn is actually, you know, this is all for some end. And either, and generally what you're trying to do is match, you know, sources of capital with users of capital. And you need to make sure that on both sides, someone's getting something out of it. You know, um, you know users of capital are, you know, are getting uh, access to funding at, you know, a cost or rates that are, you know, that are reasonable. And the sources of capital are able to get a return. And it was actually, as I started to understand that, like, you know, that's why people invest in companies at an IPO or they'll buy a business. M and A deal. I started to really develop an affinity for that. It's called the buyer perspective, um, and uh, which you know, led then to the next step in my career, which was to go over to the buy side. You know, where I, I worked at a, a family office that was doing a range of private equity strategies, uh, a couple of venture funds, and uh, now today I'm back in the venture world. Uh, you know, understanding why would someone choose to put their money in one place as opposed to another, which basically is what investors need to do, um, and it's all about you know being able to have a coherent proposition around, well, what's the equity story and how's that going to generate a return that makes sense for the risk that you're presenting? Now, out of all things, you know, healthcare, you know, it sounds like during your time, you know, on the buy side, especially at the family office that you were working at, you know, it sounds like healthcare was what got you hooked. You know, what, what was it about healthcare? Because it sounds like, you know, once you got that first date, you know, you haven't 
taste you haven't stopped you know in the in the in this in this industry yeah that's a really good that's a really good observation and you know before that i was sort of i probably was a bit industry agnostic it was more about doing the financing work that was interesting to me and then when i came across the healthcare sector you know i discovered something really interesting right which is it's a big industry it accounts for something like 20% of the us economy so there's a, there's a lot of business there a lot of money to be made a lot of money to be wasted so it's big and it matters and there are opportunities the other thing is i've always been fascinated by science and technology you know healthcare is where science and technology come to play uh, and, um, and, it, and that it's applied in a way that makes a difference in something that matters to every single person, which is their health and well-being. And so the combination of those things, commercially significant, intriguing from a technical perspective and the science and the technology, and having the ability to move the needle on something that's important in everyone's life that I, you know, I got, I came, I stayed, and I was hooked, as you say, and it's been my focus now for the last 25 years. So in your case, you know, eventually you ended up uh, helping, you know, Atlas Venture with the with the with the fund that they had uh, going in there, and I find that, you know, this actually gave you the opportunity to really get your feet wet, you know, as a first time, you know, operator there. What what, what was the company called again? It was it was called. It was Nitec Pharma. It was a German specialty pharma. That uh, yeah, that was a that was my first operational experience. Yeah, but but there, you know, there was something really unique uh, that you did, which was to eventually uh, prepare the company for IPO and get it to go public. I guess, you know, there is many folks that right now are uh, listening to us and that are perhaps on the growth stage, you know, trying to think about like how to look ahead and, and think about like what could that look like for them. What were some of the things that uh, perhaps like the key things that you learned on preparing a company to to go IPO? Yes, I will just clarify. When I was there, the main thing that I did is I put in place the Series B funding round and helped with um, some product licensing um, and then put preparations in place that were ultimately intended to lead to an IPO, as you say. Uh, but, you know, but I, the, the actual IPO itself was was intended to be executed by the team that was my successor team. And actually, the IPO didn't happen because 2008 financial crisis came and that shut the markets down. Um, and uh, I, ultimately, what happened in NYTEC is it merged with Horizon Therapeutics, which uh, we all know has come to a really exciting end recently. Um, so that was it. That was you know, I, I helped prepare for everything to get to that IPO, but then um, I stepped out and the, the markets shut down. So that didn't happen, unfortunately. But it had so it had so one thing a lesson from that is you got to be nimble, right? So you think you're preparing for an IPO, but then maybe you're doing an M and A deal or maybe it's a strategic sale. And actually, one of the things I've seen time and again is in order to get a good trade sale, a good strategic takeout. You need to convince the strategic buyers that you have a strong BATNA. You have a strong, you know, best alternative to negotiated agreement with them that you have something else you can do. And so oftentimes the companies that get, you know, really good M&A takeouts are the ones that have been preparing for IPO and have a credible path to IPO. So strategics know if they don't pay fairly, the company's going to have the ability to grow and continue to become a competitive threat, either alone or in the hands of someone else. So that's often you know, one of the key lessons I've learned is make sure you've got like multiple multiple arrows in your quiver. Uh, you're not just relying on one path because uh, that's the way that you get the best possible outcome. Now, in your case, you know one thing that uh, that that I've observed too is that uh, you you really like to get involved and with the companies that you end up investing in because you know basically what what you did next you know is you went to to deploy, you know, from a $200 million fund 
And eventually one of the companies that uh, that you deployed in was a company that you ended up going fully, you know, uh, both feet in. So tell us about like this approach, you know, and like really rolling up the sleeves like to the next level. And then also how was that experience with what became a pivotal moment, you know, in, in your career, which was leading Quanta Dialysis Technologies? Yeah, that was um, that was a really interesting journey and one that I wouldn't have fully predicted. Uh, but you're right. It started when, um, as, uh, as, as somebody leading a venture fund, um, I you know, found a company, or actually I found a technology and a team that were trapped inside of an industrial, um, a, a larger industrial concern um, that had nothing to do with medical devices, but the technology had the potential to be applied in uh, dialysis. So I helped you know, structure the spin out of that to pull the team, the IP, the technology out, create an independent company, which went on to be called Quanta Dialysis Technologies, uh, that would be formed to develop all of that into uh, a portable hemodialysis system that could do things uh, differently from the current state of state of care. Uh, so we created that vehicle, funded the Series A. I joined the board as a founding non-exec. And I, from day one, I went very deep. I always wanted to understand how does the product work? What problem is really being solved? Who's going to pay for it? How valuable can that be? What are the things we need to do to generate the evidence to unlock value as we go along? And I was always very deep in that. And if I couldn't you know, answer those questions to satisfy myself, then I didn't feel that I was doing my job. So that always led to a, a hunger to dig deeper and to understand what was going on. And um, because I got so close, the board invited me to take on the CEO role a few years later when there was a, a succession opportunity from the founding team. Um, and I, you know, I hadn't necessarily, uh, had, I didn't have a generalized ambition to be a CEO at that point. I kind of felt that was probably something other people did. Um, but then you know, I got comfort from the fact that I had a high level of conviction around the company and its need to and deserving to be successful, but also needing the kind of leadership that could help steer that. And so I jumped in feet first as a first-time CEO, first-time general manager. Um, and actually, it was wonderful. I mean, it was, it was very challenging, very hard, uh, but you know, I immersed myself in it and uh, you know, surrounded myself with great people. Uh, and we did some really hard things. I mean, there are only a handful of dialysis systems that have ever been developed to see the light of day, um, uh, especially those that are novel like ours and not just V2 clones. And um, in fact, there's you know there are a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of roadkill along the way. You know, we famously Baxter spent half a billion dollars trying to develop a home hemo system that never 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 saw the light of day. Uh, you know, Medtronic's been working on one for 10 years that still hasn't come through the FDA. So, you know, these are hard problems we set out to solve. And, um, you know, I was just really excited, though, by the possibility that if we could solve these problems and have a dialysis system that could go to where the patients are, as opposed to the current care paradigm of making patients go to dialysis machines, that we could move the needle by improving their quality of life, by improving outcomes, uh, and by, as well, offering something that offers very attractive health economics when you look at it in a broad sense. So the mission was just so important that it made it worthwhile. And so I, you know, to, my mission became to be a subject matter expert in that. I started off knowing very little about dialysis, and for 10 years, I cultivated as much knowledge as I could about every facet of the business so that I could be a, a good, you know, good, good, good co-pilot and leader 
to the organization. And I think we got to some really good places. I'm very proud of what we've achieved there. Quanta is now one of the most prominent med tech companies in Europe. It's one of the most prominent emerging dialysis players. You know, we have some, some, uh, some, some, uh, some things that we achieved that remain industry records, like you know, raising the largest funding around ever in dialysis, larger than our peers' IPOs. So we've done, we did some really good things. But most importantly, we saw the effect of what we were doing on patients, and that was, you know, I literally had one of the most memorable moments. Was when we were pilot, when we were rolling our device out in the UK, uh, the family of one of our home patients contacted us and said, "Thank you, you have given us our father back. Now that he's dialyzing on your device at home, he has energy, he has ambition, he has a positive outlook, he feels better, he's more functional. Uh, this is the this is the man we know and love, and we had been losing him for years as he succumbed to kidney failure." and uh, the experience of normal center-based dialysis. And hearing things like that you know, just made the, the journey worthwhile. And it's a, there's nothing that can replace hearing something like that. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Because for the people that are listening to get it, you know, what is the uh, business model of Quanta Dialysis Technologies? So we developed a portable hemodialysis machine that it was easy to use. So it removes a lot of the obstacles from getting patients uh, onto dialysis, dialing dialysis themselves at home uh, because it was easy to use. It was easy to train. It was less intimidating. It was small. It fit in the house. It was not something that looked like a scary piece of hospital equipment. It looked like a nice piece of consumer electronics. Uh, we provided a lot of support around that, including a digital health ecosystem that automated a lot of stuff and provided a lot of information. So because of those things, patients were more comfortable taking the therapy home. Uh, it was easier for them to learn to use the device than traditional. So the combination of those things uh, meant that more patients are able to enjoy the benefits of home hemo, which includes the ability to dialyze more frequently and to not have to dialyze. So for example, you know, one of the big problems is within center dialysis is patients 
can't dialyze over the weekend. And so they just pick up all this extra fluid. And then you see this thing, this horrible thing called the Monday morning death, where uh, there's a 23% elevation in mortality in dialysis patients on Mondays because of all the extra fluid. They've got a device and they can dialyze at home. They can do that on a Saturday or a Sunday. They don't have that extra fluid and therefore they shouldn't have that excess mortality. So you can really move the needle on their well-being by making it available to them. So then uh, obviously when you stepped in, there was just an R&D team, you know, engineers for the most part. How did you think about like building the team around you and what did that look like as you were scaling this, you know, through one cycle to the next? Yeah, there was a really cool and inspiring team of innovative engineers. And without them, you know, Quanta never would have got to where it did because they were trying to do things that people in the industry basically said was not possible. It's not possible to make the device that small, not possible to do all the fluidics operations on a disposable cup. And sometimes it takes that outsider who doesn't know that it's not supposed to be possible to do it. Uh, and so, you know, I, you know, Quanta is forever indebted to that team that got things going. And many of them continue to this day to drive them. But there was one thing, there were some things that were missing. There wasn't a whole lot of knowledge about medical device development. There wasn't a whole lot of knowledge about how you bring that through a regulator or how um, you think about positioning that in a way that's going to be commercially successful. And so, you know, what my job there was really to build that out, build out more capability on operations and supply chain, to build out capability in terms of commercial positioning, to build out capability for the regulatory and quality piece, uh, and to work with the team to think through what is going to be a, the right go-to-market strategy and therefore the equity story. How do you raise money around that? So it was the miss. It was the, it was basically filling the gaps along the way, and you know over time the team got larger and better, and you know people who had higher levels of capability. So it was very exciting to watch the company grow. I imagine it's a lot like you know watching watching a child grow and flower and blossom. That was you know that was the joy I had at Quanta seeing that unfold over time, um, and uh, you know it still continues on an excellent trajectory, um, and, and no doubt will make a big difference in patients' lives. So as you were uh, going with Quanta Doom, I mean, you guys, you know, it was not like a, like a path, you know, like a straight line up. You know, you really need to stick to, to what you were doing, you know, keep the focus, keep the belief and the conviction as you were sharing earlier. So walk us through, through how did that look like? Like make us insiders. Yeah. So part of it was that um, it's never clear. Um, you start off with an idea, right? And you have some sort of vision. And that one thing that's been true to Quanta along the way is portable system, cartridge-based fluidics, helping patients in the home. And that's a core to the mission. But there's a lot of details along the way that you don't even know until you go on, start on that mission. So there's a kind of humility you need to bring with you, which is just accept there are going to be unknown unknowns in addition to the known unknowns. And you need to integrate that knowledge as quickly as you can as you go along and you know there are the, the, so the shape of the journey i could not have predicted uh you know i'll be honest we had we we had an initial hope that the, the journey would be quicker and shorter but we also did not even imagine that we could create something of the value that we ended up creating right so um and um and and you know quanta's story is yet to be written it's still has an upward trajectory, and I have no doubt it will become a multi-billion-dollar business. Um, and while we didn't really have a credible, credible plan for how we were going to get there back in the day, 
And we thought most likely a strategic would take it out and that would be someone else's problem. And, and we ended up having to take it a lot further than we originally imagined, but we ended up having something as a business that was a lot more exciting that we discovered additional market segments that we could tap into. So at one point along the way, we did some creative thinking and asked ourselves, what are the set of things that make this good for home dialysis that might be useful in other applications? And as we started to unpack that, we saw, well, actually, the fact that it's portable and small and easy to use, yet flexible and powerful, that could all be very useful in other settings, like a hospital, where you're, it's crowded, you have nurses who have different levels of skill and knowledge, different mix of instruments. Like if you could wheel that in and bring it to the patient's bedside and maybe use it, uh, compare that compared to big bulky machines that are heavy and hard to move around, difficult to use by anyone other than a dedicated technician. You know, we saw that there were other applications actually where the device. So as we unpacked that, we understood that the addressable market uh, was much larger than we originally thought. Uh, and uh, it was subject to very different dynamics, different reimbursement, different pricing. And so we started to see something that's much bigger, more complex for sure, but more beautiful uh, than our, our original understanding of what we were going to do. And that's, you know, that was a really interesting part of the journey is helping to like unfold and unpack that as we went along. And how much capital did you guys raise the, for the company? You know, until I left in 2022, the company raised just under $400 million, which included the Series D uh, funding round in 2021, uh, which is remains the, the largest funding round ever for a dialysis equipment company, uh, even larger than the IPOs of our peers, you know, outset and next stage. So definitely a, you know, a, a banner event in the industry, which speaks very well to uh, the, the type of opportunity that we were pursuing and the, uh, the, the just the, the ability for, uh, for the company and its platform to win by taking market share ultimately in that market. That's amazing. Now you are actually, you know, switching gears and you are co-heading the healthcare ventures at the Downing. Uh, now, now, obviously, you know, like it's saying that there you guys are doing good stuff, you know, two billion of assets under management. But one question comes to mind, you know, now that uh, you've come a long way, you know, uh, investment banking turned uh, investor, then turn operator, then turn investor again. What are the real differences? Like, how do you how do you see how are the lenses uh, differentiating from when you put them on as an operator versus when you put them on as an investor? Yeah, that's a great question. I've had to flip out of those into and out of those modes two, three times now in my career. I'd say one of the big differences is in a, as a VC, as an investor, people who are good at it tend to have a high level of what I call intellectual promiscuity, the ability to rapidly learn about a bunch of different things, dig into them, then move on to something else. Um, and so you've got to cover a lot of area and very quickly sort of grasp some fundamentals so you can assess uh, what you're looking at, the quality of the opportunity, interact with the people who are uh, active in that field. But you need to be able to switch modes very quickly, right? Uh, one day you're looking at a if you're a life sciences investor, maybe one day you're looking at a structural heart device, and the next you're looking at an immunotherapy. And, and um, there's just very different therapy areas, very different modalities. And so you need to have the ability to like flit around those different areas. Uh, and, it not, and I don't mean to suggest superficiality, but you know, you've got to cover a lot of breadth, right? And to be able to shift in and out of those things. Um, when you're an operator, when you're running a company or building a technology, 
Your job is to become the world's subject matter expert in that thing and in the things that relate to that. So you tend to go, you tend to have a much narrower field of focus and you're going to go way deeper. I mean, if you're not becoming the world's subject matter expert in that field, then you're probably doing something wrong because uh, you're, 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 you're generally proposing to change the world in some way to do something that's going to be commercially successful and without, and that can only be done by being a world leader in something. And so there's a, they both require, it's a different set of skills. One is about, you know, going really deep into uh, a, a, a defined uh, realm of knowledge. And the other is about being really broad. And uh, so that's one difference. Uh, and I, and I, and I, and I, you know, I don't know that, you know, investors always understand, appreciate that, that, you know, good management teams, Will have a depth of knowledge that uh, it's impossible for them to fully communicate to investors. It's just they're spending all of their intellectual bandwidth every day thinking about these things and absorbing the information. And then part of the job of a leadership team in a startup is to distill that right into some abstractions that are true, but nonetheless generalized or simplified that allow for meaningful interaction with board of investor and investors. Um, and I. And you know, having come in and out of those modes a couple times now, you know, I can just see that there's just a depth of knowledge and awareness that you know, that you have inside a company uh, that can be it can be challenging to communicate in its fullness to somebody who's not doing that every day. Um, and I find it's useful to be aware of that, right? As now I'm in the other mode, I'm an investor, I sit on boards, you know, and understanding that and respecting that, um, and you know, knowing then. Um, you know, when it's important to get down into the details, because sometimes you have to, but knowing that it's not always, you know, getting down into every detail on every topic is impractical when you're in that role as a board member or an investor. Um, and so knowing how to focus on what's truly important is, you know, is important when you're, when you're doing, when you're in that role. Um, and I think that translates to stuff like, uh, as an investor now, uh, if I'm conducting diligence on something, you know, really knowing what are the what are the white hot issues that are going to speak to whether this thing will succeed or fail and not necessarily spending a lot of time on tick box issues that aren't super relevant to you know, the company and its success and knowing how to differentiate between those and allocate your your bandwidth in an appropriate way and also you know you're taking up time of management teams and so you know doing that in a respectful way I love that I love that well there's probably a lot of founders that uh... Right now, I'm sure they are, you know, executing in the healthcare space that I'm wondering, hey, you know, how can I, you know, reach out to John and, 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 and say hi, you know, how can they do so? Well, uh, there are many ways you can, uh, you can start. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at J.E. Malad. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn under my own name. Uh, so those are probably the two best ways to contact me through social media. And, um, you know, if you, if you, if you give me a little sense of what you're, what you're, what you're looking for. Then we can pick that up in uh, more conventional ways, you know, email, phone calls, et cetera. I'm always interested in meeting other people who are doing interesting things. Uh, I'm intensely curious. Uh, I, I always want to know uh, more. Uh, and uh, you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. It's a very, you know, it's a, tr it's a truism. Um, so um, always exciting to meet other people. I'm now as a in the as a fund manager. It is my job to be intellectually promiscuous. So, um, you know, I, uh, any, you know, anyone has something uh, that they want to discuss, then uh, please reach out to me. Amazing. Well, hey, John, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today.
Thank you. Great being here. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.